from Studio A in Podcast Village, Upper Georgetown, Washington, D.C. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics with your host and moderator, Justin Russell. Hello out there in Radioland. It is time for the best political talk show you've never heard of. Joining me in studio, he is the former Joe Biden political operative that we know as Dan Lipner Esquire. Hello, Daniel. Hello, Justin. <laughs> wow, is that your deep, sexy voice? Thanks, Dan. Appreciate that. Glad you that. think it's sexy, Justin. Yeah, well, we won't go into that. Anyway, he is the <laughs> former Undersecretary of Commerce for International Trade. He is the one we know as the Honorable Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Hello, Justin. And joining us from an undisclosed New England location, he is the author of American Politics on the Rocks. He is the former Huffington Post contributor. We know him as Rich Rubino. Hey, Rich, thanks for joining us again. Many times. And, uh, of course, we've got our producer, Eric Thomas, who's in the cage right there with Rob the Engineer. And, of course, uh, we've got uh, Audrey Howerton. Hey, before I get started, I do want to say one thing. Congratulations to our uh, executive producer emeritus, Audrey Howerton. Audrey Howerton graduated from college uh, this past week, and we want to give her a special shout out for uh, hopefully the first day of the rest of her professional future. Hoorah! And we want to say congratulations to her. Anyway, also to everybody in the graduating class of 2019. Hey, we want to talk a little bit. There's so much we got to talk about on on, on this uh, broadcast, but we want to talk a little bit about 2020 politics, but more specifically, in case you haven't seen it, there's a Republican that might be growing, hold for it, a backbone. Justin Amosh, the Republican from the uh, great state of Michigan, I believe. Is that correct, yep. Alan? Yep. He represents he, Gerald Ford's old district. I guess he's kind of the uh, byword for today. Yes, yes, thank <laughs> you. Everything's about Gerald Ford today for some reason. Everything, everything, everything is very geriocentric right now. Uh, <laughs> we've got uh, Justin, uh, Justin Amosh, who is the uh, Michigan Republican, who is a member of the Freedom Caucus and is libertarian as they come, but he is, in fact, the first Republican to come out and say that the proceedings for possible impeachment of the president should begin in earnest right away. Uh, this set off the president, as you can only imagine, which set off Justin Amosh in a Twitter storm. <clears throat> Excuse me, we'll get to that in a second, but let's talk about the bigger consequence of this. Uh, Rich Rubino, in the, in, in the grand scheme of things, in a Republican Party where the president holds upwards of 70 to 80 percent approval ratings, we've got a Republican in the House that is now calling for proceedings on impeachment to begin. Is, is he just isolated or is he possibly the first? Yeah, no, he's an iconoclast. Um, he's really a libertarian more so than he's a Republican. He's actually probably the most, you know, a lot of people, when they heard this name, a lot, most people probably haven't heard of him, think, well, he must be a liberal Republican. He must be from Rhode Island somewhere. He's actually from a relatively conservative district in Michigan, and his, his potential political vulnerability is now with a primary opponent. He's very much a libertarian. This is somebody who, for example, is extremely consistent in his voting pattern. He's voted against the Great Lakes Restoration legislation, for example, even though he comes from Michigan, a state that would benefit from it. He's very much a constitutionalist. He was a supporter of Ron Paul. In 2008, he's a non-interventionist on foreign policy. He's really an aberration, I think, to the establishment Republican Party. I don't think there's very many Republicans. Maybe the only one that comes close is probably Tom Massey of Kentucky, who really share his more libertarian views in the House of Representatives. Um, I think when it, when, when it really becomes perilous for Donald Trump is when you see somebody from more of the left wing of the Democratic of the Republican Party, there are very few liberal Republicans, but someone like, say, Fred Upton from Michigan or somebody like that, 
who comes out and suggests this. But right now, I think the Republicans can isolate him. Even Kevin McCarthy says he votes more with Nancy Pelosi. Well, that's true because he's voting from the, but he's doing that in the right wing of the, of the Republican Party. He's voting against, for example, um, he voted against the balanced budget amendment because he didn't think it went too far. So what he's saying is technically true, but you know that he really is an iconoclast. I wouldn't really take what he says as consequential. When more liberal Republicans or moderate Republicans come, then that's when the president's really in trouble. But Alan Moore, th- this is a guy that is, I mean, conservative uh, poster child. He's got a high approval rating with with uh, you know uh, with with conservative organizations, including <laughs> yep. uh, Heritage uh, Club, uh, for growth, yeah. Club for Growth, etc. Is is he just? I mean, what what would possess Justin Amos to take this route and not only call out Trump, but call out Attorney General Barr and call out the entire process as a whole? Principle. Is, is this principle or is this political suicide? Maybe both. But I think I think he's driven by by his personal beliefs, by principle. And. And we, we, it's hard not to admire somebody who speaks from the heart, speaks from principle, um, and it may, it may be uh, political suicide. That remains to be seen. He did, he did draw a primary opponent within 24 hours, uh, a, man, a, a state legislator who said that he had planned to run anyway. He thought this was a good time to announce it. Um, but that we'll we'll see what happens. I don't I don't see any evidence that this is just the f- the first of a wave. Um, I see it at this at, at this point in time as as uh, an isolated event. Yeah, I mean it's worth, it's worth noting. So I I, I think uh, I I had long uh, passed the line on the show uh, the the. And actually suggested to some of my Democratic friends that somebody needs to walk around with a lantern uh, on the Hill requesting to to look for a a Republican with political integrity. Um, Yeah, we may have found one. And whether or not – and I know we have a historian on the line, so maybe he can help me out with who the line was quoted to uh, or allegedly quoted to was uh, for the impeachment of Andrew Johnson. The as I cast this vote, I look into my open grave. Um, this might be one of those things, and to his credit, saying that he is willing to risk his political future for something he legitimately believes in, for the integrity of the process and the, the integrity of our institutions, both the presidency <coughs> and Congress. He deserves credit for that. But it, but it, it's a thin line between one man's uh, one man's ideological principled stance as another man's pariah is he is this a is this an act of political bravery is this political courage that we're seeing coming out of justin every, you know, it's, every oh, political every political action and every political bold move has somebody who did it first and that person is not always remembered and that person doesn't always win but before there is two there must be one and if he's that first person kudos well, you know, it's, not, it's like you go back to the Gulf of Tonkin resolution, which passed unanimously in the House of Representatives in the Senate that year. This was in 1964, which gave President Johnson essentially carte blanche to use forces in Vietnam. You had Senator Ernest Grewing from Alaska, and they had Wayne Morse from Oregon, and they were the two kind of outliers. And eventually they became um, – their, their views in terms of opposing the Vietnam War became the establishment views in the Democratic Party and eventually in the nation. So – you're right. I mean, Justin Amos was really, he will be remembered, certainly in history, as um, as the first person to do this. And there's also a possibility that he could get the Libertarian nomination this year. He's been talking about that for in the past, um, you know, because he's not really part of the establishment Republicans. He's always been more of where the Republicans were in, say, Warren G. Harding, Robert Taft, um, kind of where the Republicans were back in the 50s and the 20s. He's not a contemporary Republican. So he's always been kind of isolated. And, you know, it's fascinating. This is somebody who's willing to vote against social spending, even though it's going to benefit his own congressional district. I know there are some people in that district. Um, Vern Elders, who was his predecessor, was very good at bringing earmarks, for example, to the district. And there are some people in Grand Rapids who say, you know, we need a congressman who's going to advocate for us, not one who necessarily is here just to advocate for some sort of an ideological principle. 
But, you know, this is, he perhaps is perhaps the best way for him to kind of as an exit ramp in politics would be to not run for reelection to his to his House seat and spend his time running as a libertarian alternative. And I think the Democrats would like that because the at least because the common the common, I think, um, prevailing belief is that if he were to run in, he would take more votes in Michigan, specifically around his congressional district, that would have gone to Donald Trump anyways for more constitutional Republicans, which could potentially benefit the Democratic presidential nominee. So I think that um, they would like very much for him to run as a libertarian nominee. Alan Moore, does, does this... Does this move by Justin Amosh, uh, normally I would think that this would have cost him his committee assignments. Well, no, no, this is an interesting question you raise, though. It it, it creates a a real dilemma for the leadership. Normally, when you take something away from a member, it's because of personal misconduct, criminal behavior, um, not uh, a, a... political position, which is contrary to that held by most of his colleagues. There are going to be some of his colleagues who are going to whisper, wow, Justin, I, I, I really admire, I, I, I admire your, your, uh, your courage here. Um, I get that a lot. I'm not in a position. I get that a lot. Yeah, I bet you do. Um, and, and, uh, are just simply not, and I don't even know, he, he Nobody wants to go say that to him and run the risk that they're going to say, "Here are the here are the twelve colleagues who said way to go." So, so it, 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 there's there's true caution there, but there are people who are going to look at him and say, "Wow, I am not in a position to do that," but hey, more power to you, man. Um, but but it's it there's not a big following right now of 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 that kind it's just it's it's just uh you know him trying to trying to do what he a what he presumably what he thinks is right but he's also presumably made a political calculus either i think i can make this work for me there's no there's no politician who doesn't factor in the political anytime they do something especially if it's out of the ordinary it doesn't mean that that means they never do anything it just means that it's all part of a big calculation now some people um dan for one thinks that that means everyone else lacks integrity i don't have that view but i i understand why 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 people do um but but he's he he may run for president as libertarian as as rich suggested he may think this is a, a way to set himself apart but but back to your original question the the leadership is in this awkward position. Here's this guy, and the pre- the president's mad at him. The president's trashing him, as he does when he gets mad at people. Um, do we take a committee assignment away from him um, for simply disagreeing politically with something? I don't think they do. I think they just try to tamp it down and say, hey, um, he, a, I mean, he, he has an opinion that most of us don't share. Alan, hold on. This, this is most it, of us don't publicly share. Let's let's be clear about that. Right. There's lots. Of, but, there's been plenty of reporting that suggests this is the kind of stuff that Republicans talk about privately, but they're all terrified to talk about publicly. You know, it's interesting. Yeah, but, um, Steve King from Iowa was the last House member who had said things that some perceived as white supremacists, and they did take him off of his committee, uh, off of his committees, including the Agricultural Committee, which really benefits his Sioux City. Iowa congressional district. Another example I can think of is the Democrats took James Trafficken off of his committees in part because he endorsed Denny Hastert as Speaker of the House back in 2002. And and worth noting, both were huge public embarrassments, which made (laughs) life really easy for leadership. Yeah, oh, absolutely. No, no, it's it's a fair point because I did say misconduct and, and illegal behavior, and you've given two examples that were where it, it was arguably neither, but it was so over the top embarrassing. I mean, Trafkin and, died in jail, I think. And it, no, Traf- he died at a tra- he died in um, actually a farming accident, and he was in a tractor after he had come out of jail. But he did. But he <laughs> did but, ironically, but he did. I'm not laughing at the fate of him, but the fact he, that you knew that off the top of your head he, is impressive. He did. He did go to. He did go to jail. That's true. And Steve yeah. King had had years of of of, of being an embarrassment. And we're, we're getting, and, we're, uh, we're getting off track here, but because uh, I want to go back to Justin Amosh, is it's not like he disagreed with the president. He's basically calling for 
uh, proceedings on impeachment to begin almost immediately, that defies the Reagan don't talk bad about another Republican eight ways till Sunday. Does this if if uh, Kevin McCarthy doesn't take action on this, is he showing that there may be other in the party, in the House of Representatives that might feel this way? Or is this putting him in such an awkward position he's going to have to show some weakness so on this? I, I have a procedural question here as far as the House goes. Committee assignments, I thought, were done by the Speaker and then as a in cooperation with the minority leader, but the Speaker still has the ability to assign committee assignments no. under the current rules. No, the, the steering committee. No, no. This, the the speaker it, it, it the speaker could not do something. It it would be up to the it would be up to the minority. Um, uh, and, uh, 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 no, but uh, under the rules is is the minority not just given at th- that permission right as a as a handoff of the speaker's partial rights. The minority has I don't almost think it, I, the house is a majoritarian body unlike the senate. I don't I I've not heard of a speaker in injecting himself or herself on a, on a committee assignment that the minority party made. Now what happens is the the minority leader basically controls but he re- makes recommendations to the caucus, and the caucus follows his lead because he can give and take away the committee assignments. It's one of the few things anymore that 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 can be a carrot or a stick um, with 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 members. But the minority controls its seats, and the and the majority controls its seats. I don't know how that works with within the rules i think it probably is rules that are that 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 are accepted oh, embraced eat every two years <laughs> well in which so case like pull, 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 all right going avoiding the rabbit hole or getting back out of the rabbit hole as far as i could tell uh, from the amosh statements uh it was not just against the president but but also against the attorney general for uh, both lying and obstruction uh, at the Correct. attorney general and the president. And that has little to do with their political beliefs, has more to do with the integrity outright question. So I, I understand we're asking a lot of the voters that we sometimes have contempt for, and my apologies for that. But understanding the difference between, yeah, I like everything you stand for, but you're still a crook, uh, can still be two different things. And Amash could be gambling that that his voters understand the difference. And I hope he's right. I mean, we we go to um, uh, to Alan Moore. Does does Justin Amash come out i mean would it make sense for him to now identify as an independent in order to keep him off the crosshairs of the larger republican party or does he stay more effective by just being a thorn in the side of the party in his current house capacity no i think he i think i i would be very surprised if he decided to somehow disassociate if he decided to rename himself um, I can't see how that could help him politically, and I and I can't see how it would be useful to him to no longer uh, caucus with with the Republicans. Um, so I I don't see the, the, anything like that working in his favor. Now you there there is one thing that's sort of ironic here. We're talking about how this guy steps up and says I think maybe we really should institute impeachment proceedings. Now, remember what that means. It means a formal investigation begins of whether impeachable offenses were committed by the target of, of impeachment, usually a president, but you can impeach cabinet members and, and, and federal judges as well. So The attorney general so, is also the target of that. So, so he, uh, he is a member of the cabinet, yes. Um, and and so, um, if if they go down, you know, it's not like the Democrats are going to say, "Oh, we got Justin saying, let's do it. Come on, let's do it." There's this ironic business that a lot of that the president himself see and, and other Republicans and observers see benefit 
political benefit possibly for the president were impeachment proceedings to begin um, because they would they would turn it into a partisan or try to turn it into a partisan witch hunt. The fact that Justin Amash has joined the, the, the chorus, the still relatively small chorus, but a growing one uh, for let's start an impeachment proceeding um, isn't enough cover for yeah. the Democrats who want to do it. If you could get 15 or 20 Republicans, that's a whole different ballgame. Yeah. Oh, but also worth noting, and while this hasn't been thoroughly tested in the courts, under an impeachment proceeding, arguably Congress's subpoena authority jumps huge. The idea that anything is off limits for Congress to actually go after for evidence for an impeachment, it is widely right. believed that those subpoenas hold significantly more weight. So the president might be misreading the tea leaves here. What Dan, what, what Dan says is really important here because we've talked about about the tax returns. We've talked about um, uh, some of the people around the president, like Don McGahn. We've talked about the personal records, uh, financial records of all of the Trump companies. It's not at all certain that the the Congress is going to be able to get those in its simple playing its simple oversight role. But as Dan says. And this is something that I'm sure that that has not escaped the the uh, the Democrats and the Demo- the leadership, the strategists, and so on. Do this one step at a time. Try to f- try to get this information, and try to make an issue of why we are legitimately seeking that information. And if we can't get that information in the normal course, then we can consider initiating impeachment proceedings in order to get that information, which we couldn't get in any other way. That's a possibility. Something about um, Justin Amish that I think is interesting is that while I don't think he would become an independent, first of all, he lends himself to the criticism that people who say, I elected you as a Republican, um, now you're becoming an independent, or I gave money to you as a Republican. I remember when Richard Shelby, who had been elected as a Democrat, um, switched in in 1994 after the Bill Clinton's huge loss in the House and the Senate, in the um, in the midterm elections, he said, "I'll give back all the money." But there are some. There is one precedent where a person actually benefited from um, switching parties, and that was Phil Graham back in 1983. He was a very conservative Democrat, co-sponsor of the Reagan tax cut, Bo Weevil Democrat, left the Democratic Party and actually um, resigned from Congress. And then they had him amid a special election. He ran as Republican and recaptured that seat. Then later became a United States senator from Texas. But the one example that I can think of that's probably Real similitude to what's going on with Justin Amish right now is Ron Paul. Back in 1988, remember, Ron Paul was a Republican member of the United States Congress. And in 1988, he switched and became a libertarian, did not run for re-election that year, and instead ran as the Libertarian Party's presidential nominee, the same path that um, Amish took. And then Ron Paul, though, he later went back to the Republican Party and in 1996 ran in a Republican primary and beat Tom Laughlin and then became a Republican again and has never since could be moved back to the Libertarian Party. But I think that what Justin Amish, perhaps the best, if he is going to work and run for the Libertarian nomination, the best course for him would be to stay as a Republican and simply run as a Libertarian nominee, similar to what Bernie Sanders does. You know, he's an independent, he's a registered independent, but he runs for the Democratic presidential nominee because he says, um, you know, I was elected by the people of Vermont as an independent. Right. Well, one of the things I want to point out also is that Eric, uh, Eric Thomas, our producer, uh, brought this to our attention that, in fact, although Amosh is still in his committee assignments, uh, Kevin McCarthy and the uh, the lack (laughs) Kevin McCarthy decided the lack of loyalty by Justin Amosh that uh, there's a possibility he will be removed or no longer allowed to belong to, <clears throat> excuse me, the GOP caucus. <laughs> Alan Moore, how does him not being a part of the caucus but still having his committee hearings, how does that affect his power? Can he be effective <laughs> to the constituents in Michigan? They're not going to – if they don't take his committee assignment away, they're not going to tell him not to come to the caucus. He's going to something of a pariah, um, He's but he's been a loner, uh, you know, and an independent voice anyway. Um, I just don't see that, that that's the, the path that this is going to take. He's going to have to <laughs> – 
He's going to have to argue his case with his constituents as to why they should continue to support him. Um, and, and that's not guaranteed that they will continue to do that. Yeah, but that's not what the issue lie, where the issue lies. And we all know this. That, uh, <laughs> while I, 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 I do not think highly of the uh, minority leader McCarthy without question, <laughs> this was an uncomfortable phone call that he received from the White House arguably from the president, that he had to find some way of appeasing the tyrant in the Oval Room in the White House that might get him off the phone without this turning into another Twitter storm. I am quite certain that's how it played out, and McCarthy wants no part of it. I'm willing to be proved wrong, but I have a strong suspicion that's how it really played out. All right. Well— Two minutes left, Richard Bino. Does does Justin Amos survive this politically, or is this politically unattainable? Uh, my guess is he's using this as an exit ramp. My guess is he probably is seriously considering, has been seriously considering running for the Republican nomination, the Libertarian <laughs> Party nomination. Uh, my guess is also that he will not run for re-election. But it's interesting when you talk about, I mean, when you talk about his Michigan constituents. You know, this is a guy who is extremely honest, who has basically said. Going back to his first congressional race, back in you know he's basically said that I'm not going to do anything for the for my constituents specifically. I'm a strict constitutionalist. Um, that I'm basically going to be here, and that my job is to uphold the Constitution, which means sometimes you know if you look at votes, sometimes it'd be 434 to one or 434 with one president. You know he's really um, he really sees himself more as a, as I think a tribune of the Constitution than I think he does a tribune of the people of Grand Rapids. And there's been some for institutional Republicans. I know there's been a lot of backlash. They never really viewed him as one of them, and I think they would like to get somebody who's more like Vern Elders, who was his predecessor, who's more of an establishment Republican, but somebody who's willing to take the time to try to get largesse for the district, which Justin Amish just never really saw as his role. Michigan right. has problems galore. If he loses his congressional seat, or even if he doesn't, he's going to run for Congress. Uh, not Congress, excuse me, run for All governor. All right. Well, I'm going to th- we're going to take a break here. When we come back, we're going to talk about the 2020 Democrat side. Uh, and then we're going to try and figure out this human Petri dish that we've got in the studio. And between <laughs> Alan Coffin and me coughing, it's just a viral mess everywhere. We're going to try and fix that. It's not this the good back- side of going viral. I, th- no, no. We would like this to go viral, but not for the reasons that Alan and I are doing it. Uh, this is Back with Politics. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us.
from Studio A in Podcast Village, Upper Georgetown, Washington, D.C. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics with your host and moderator, Justin Russell. Justin, unmute yourself. Yeah, I, I should probably unmute myself. Thank you, Rob, the engineer, <laughs> keeping us honest. Well, no, no, well, no because I, I got Alan in there, who's basically providing, you know, bioterrorism in the studio. I'm basically hacking up lungs here in Connecticut, and good grief, I, Alan, are you feeling better? Are you okay? It it only hurts when I talk. Oh, then 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 we're all in for a treat this next segment. Hey. Uh, <laughs> Joining us, obviously, in the studio, I've got uh, I've got uh, Alan Moore, I've got Dan Lipner on the phone, I've got Rich Rubino, and in the cage, we've got Rob the Engineer and Eric Thomas, our producer. Uh, let's talk about 2020 Democratic politics. In case you don't know, the head count is at 24. Now you're going, wait a minute. I just announced 25. <laughs> oh, that's right. But right, well, officially it's 24. And everybody's asking, well, who announced? In case you missed it, New York Mayor Bill de Blasio has announced that he is seeking the Democratic nomination for uh, President of the United States. Um, some that are trying to be nice to him call it a very long shot. Currently, he polls at 0%. Uh, Dan Lipner, as our current resident Democrat expert, let me just ask this question bluntly. What was Bill de Blasio thinking? He's mayor of New York, the largest media market in the country, and he has lots of adoring <laughs> fans when he walks out of the mayor's office and he, like many people, mistakenly believed the constituency of people who show up to their events is the same constituency that is the rest of the country. Um, many Does politicians Bill fall to that same fate. I'm quite certain Bill de Blasio is seeing the diversity of New York City as the diversity of America, while... The faces of diversity absolutely do reflect the diversity of America. New York City does not re accurately reflect the diverse opinions of America. You obviously have not been to uh, Greenwich Village or Soho lately. Very diverse. It represents how many Soho GM plants are in the in the in the five lower, boroughs? Lower East Side on the Lower East Side in Manhattan, in the Bronx, in Queens. Uh, no, I'm going to go close to, to, to zero to none, and I, I, I'm willing to set that as the high-low marker. Rich Rubino, does Bill de Blasio actually have a chance of convincing people he would be the right choice? Uh, I guess, I mean, probably about the same chance Ralph Nader had in, the, in 2000 of being elected president. <laughs> you know, well, first of all, by the way, there are 248 Democratic presidential candidates who have actually filed with the Federal Election Commission. Um, so it's actually a lot more. The, the ones you're hearing about are the major candidates. Wait, you're not making that up. That's ha literally how many people have filed? Who have filed as Democrats to run for president. Of course, that, that means that essentially most of them will get on the ballot in New Hampshire. But the, the, where they have very you know, extremely liberal ballot, ballot access, you basically just need to give $1,000 and you get your name on the ballot. But after that, most of those candidates will not be able to get on their ballot in any you, other you, state. You know what? Wait. That, you know that, what? That, that I, I really? found – I. I have found a new purpose for backroom politics. I think we're going to give the 200 oh, non-popular, yes. we're going to give them a voice. Eric, I want you to start finding out who they are and let's start booking them and interviewing them. Why not? It would be fun to find out their mindset. Listen, by the way, if anyone wants to donate $1,000 to get me on the ballot in New Hampshire, that is still below what is required for me to fully file, file the election commission. So uh, it requires $5,000. So I will actually announce if I get a $1,000 check to backroom <laughs> politics, I will put my name on the ballot in New Hampshire. I thought you were working for Biden. Oh, silence. Uh, not yet. Crap. Not yet. Alan, yeah. So, Alan Moore, go ahead. Yeah, no, he's got he, – he, he's he, – 
he wants to join that 248. The thing that upsets me about the 24, though, the 24 that, that are that are commonly referred to is I loved when we had 20 for 20, 20 for 2020. It turns out we had 20 for 2020 for 20 minutes, and now we're at 24 and counting. But if Dan wants to become 25, get on, join that 248, become 249, hey, we'll have him every week. I'm yeah. not that interested in most of those 248 others. I don't, I don't know which is more disturbing, the fact that, A, that Dan Lipner is actually considering having people who listen to this show send in money to get him on the ballot in New Hampshire, or, B, Rich Rubino within seconds pulled out the fact that there are 248 people actually running on the Democratic ticket for the nomination in 2020. Well, you know what's fascinating, um, too? Oh, sorry. What's fascinating, what? too, is... No, 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 go ahead, you, Rich. How you define a major party candidate? Because back in 1992, there was a mayor of, in California um, named Larry Agron of Santa Cruz, California, and he ran for the Democratic prim- primary nomination, and he was very much a borderline candidate, and he was allowed in some debates, not allowed in others. But he was mayor of a larger city than the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, right now, Peter Buttigieg. So if you go back to 2000, for example, 1992, he probably would not have been considered a major candidate, and the Democratic Party would not have necessarily allowed him into the debates. This time around, you know, you have a mayor, you have um, you have a mayor of Miramar, uh, Florida, as a major party candidate right now. So I think there's actually they've liberalized what you consider to be a major candidate right now. And you know you have um, you have other candidates. You have you know you have um, you have Yang, for example, who I think is an entrepreneur who might have had problems getting into debates previously. Even in 1992, for example, Eugene McCarthy, Eugene McCarthy, the guy that got 42 percent of the vote in the Democratic primary in 1968 against Lyndon Johnson, he was considered a minor candidate and only got invited into one debate in 1992. This time around, you know, everyone from the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, <coughs> to the mayor of New York City, and I guess that's another reason why Bill de Blasio's in. He probably figures if a mayor of a city of 102,000 people can get 9 or 10% of the vote, certainly a mayor of a city of 8 million people can do better than that. And there's probably a little bit of, shall we say, maybe there's a little bit of jealousy there, too. Well, what's it, right. remember what the, what, the, what the Democratic rules are. Uh, they've, they've got 20 spots. One, They've got twenty spots, too, yeah. and and you have to you have to uh, you, you can you can qualify one of two ways, um, and then there's a tiebreaker. So you you can either get at least one percent in I think three national polls, yep, um, or you you have to raise um, from twenty five thousand um, from sixty five thousand contributors, but yeah, the money you from raise twenty different dollars. from twenty different states. Um, but the, there's no there's no dollar total. So it you know there was one candidate who said, "Give me a dollar, and I'll send two dollars to your favorite charity." That's how absurd it became. But people begging for a dollar now. John Delaney, to, yeah. As as a as a tiebreaker, you can uh, those who qualify both ways um, would 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 rank above anybody who qualified in only one way. So. Um, but I believe there's only 20 spots, so you could actually qualify, but you could be beat out by somebody who had either a, a better poll showing or, more likely, more donors from more places. And it's just their way of, of, of filtering it out. It doesn't matter if you're from a, a, the mayor of a small town, big town, governor, senator, um, it's... it's uh, you know, or a or a former government official yeah, like and, Joe Biden. Yeah, and let's let's not knock Mayor Pete here. Um, Mayor Pete has been impressive uh, every time he's appeared, including on Fox News uh, yep. when he <clears throat> appeared this past weekend. And as was correctly reported, he got a standing ovation from a town hall done by Fox News. Admittedly, it's a self-selected group. However, this is Fox News. And he was so well-received, it prompted a response from the president of the United States basically asking, do they not know where their bread is buttered uh, to actually give the, the this, this Democratic mayor that kind of airtime? To which Fox News defended themselves and said, by the way, this is what a news organization does. We report on both sides. Britt Hume <laughs> said this. <laughs> Yeah, no, but this brings up this brings up a really good point. Is 
you know, we've seen other Democrats do the town halls on Fox News. Is it smart of Fox News to be having the town halls with the Democrats? Or is it a bigger play that the Democrats are actually doing the town halls with Fox (laughs) News and getting exposure to a slightly conservative middle that they're going to have to attract in both the general and possibly some open primary. That's a horrible question as far as Fox News. And I would be the, one of the first folks to say I frequently question whether or not Fox News is a news channel and not a propaganda channel. But why is and, that, and, but and, why and by is the way, that... I can even quote Mayor Pete on this when he said some of the commentators, to his credit, he differentiated between commentators and reporters on Fox News saying some of the commentators were not there for genuine purposes of informing the public. And by the way, still got a good reception from the audience. Oh, he did that brilliantly because he different what he does is he differentiates Chris Wallace and Brett Baer, who are both I think are seen as 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 impartial as you can be versus and reporters. having a debate where Sean Hannity or Laura Ingram, if Laura Ingram or Tucker Carlson or Sean Hannity were the were moderating the debate, obviously you wouldn't go to that. We're commentators. But if it's somebody that's seen as more from the reporting side of Fox News, then you have a better <laughs> chance of I think appealing to a broad cross section of voters. And remember, by the way, ten percent of Fox News viewers are self identified as liberal Democrats. And there are people that watch Fox News and aren't necessarily um, conservative ideologues. And, you know, certainly in the general election, you have to get to all these people. And everyone that watches Fox News aren't the people that aren't necessarily. That's absolutely correct. They're both independents and Democrats that listen, that that watch Fox News. And by the way, there's also crossover voters that might even be Republicans when they hear there's mayor of South Bend, Indiana, talking about the jobs that he's seen disappear in his region that he could actually go, hey, you know, this guy is talking about some of the same stuff without the exhausting Twitter explosions of the president. But, and, and let me ask you, let me go back to the comment that you made that this is a bad question for Fox News. Why do you say it's bad for Fox News? Because Fox News, again, as Mayor Pete correctly pointed out, uh, it was a brilliant appearance. Um, unfortunately, I only got to read about it because I didn't actually see it. But actually calling out Tucker Carlson for using the president's language as essentially propaganda um, as the making America great again. And Fox, and Tucker Carlson being a commentator, not being a reporter on Fox News is an important differentiation. And that ability to call that out is an important thing. The fact that Fox News has that question at all and the president somehow thinks that question is legitimate, which is just disturbing on its face. We're talking the autocracy world of of the conversation. The fact that Mayor Pete navigated that so well in absolutely Republican territory he deserves credit for. And it arguably did a lot more to establish the credibility of Fox News and also knock off one of his liberal rivals who said who was both correct and incorrect when describing Fox News as an arm of the Republican Party. Therefore, she was not going to appear on Fox News. So that would be the incorrect part of of her statement, whereas the correct part was and I, and based on Mayor Pete's uh, presentation, it might even be past tense to say that Fox News is simply an arm of the Republican Party. If Democrats appear and they give a fair shake, Jesus, that's quite the opportunity. And now Elizabeth Warren has to flip sides and appear. She has to do a John Kerry-esque waffle on Fox News. It's, it was a absolutely brilliant appearance and brilliant move on his part. Well, and he and Al- he, he's not the first Democrat um, who who has appeared. Um, you, you remember how this started? Uh, Tom Perez, the head of the Democratic National Committee, announced oh, a couple of months ago, "We are not going. We got hundred debates, but we're not going to do any on Fox News." And it took some grief from some Democrats who said, "You know, they have an audience. Those people vote. Don't we want to uh, uh, appear on?" Th- on their show and make our case to Kelsey those to voters vote for us. and and so so that's where it started and then and then uh but but the 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 dnc was locked into that position at which time individual democrats started saying and i can't there have been several who have uh appeared um 
hey, I care about those voters. I want to talk to those people. I want to make my case. I think I, we, we have things we can agree on. And right. judge once again, um, exceeded expectations, got coverage, and then triggered this response from the president, which ha- has to have had a really interesting response inside Fox News, because there's some people who at Fox News who would have said, thank you, Mr. President, your right. stupidity is helping us be more credible. And there are probably some others at Fox News saying, yeah, Mr. President, that's right. We don't want we don't want to show those Democrats. But 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 none of those commentators think of themselves as pure in the pocket of the president. Well, the com- Sean Hannity appears oh, as rallies. Of course, he appears in the, po- in the pocket of the president. But I'm guessing he would he would argue, no, I'm not. I'm for, right. <laughs> truth and I'm, for, I'm for truth, justice, and the American way. I think Sean Hannity right. would actually – he actually says specifically that he's not a journalist. He identifies himself as a talk show host, whereas I think that you know Chris Wallace and Brett Baer – and there really aren't very many people at Fox you can say are necessarily – um, you know, truly independent journalists, those are the only two that I can really think of whose job is not necessarily to be an ideologue. You know, if you watch Special Report, um, from up until the time the panel comes on, when the panel comes on, it becomes very conservative. But if you watch the first half hour of it, it's actually about as fair and balanced as any other network that you can watch as CNN or MSNBC in terms of the news division. It's that it's, it's the, the opinion division. What you see at night, then you're going to be seeing the propaganda. And that's when I think most people watching are probably people who just want, you know, to be who, who just want, um, you know, narrow, narrow casting and want their comfort, their, their preconceived biases confirmed. But I think what Peter Buttigieg realizes also is that by appearing on Fox, he's getting a lot of national attention outside of Fox viewers. He's also getting attention because everyone's saying, who is this guy who appeared on Fox? And look at Donald Trump. He just elevated him to become, you know, he, I mean, when Donald Trump mentions a guy's name, people are looking, they say, you know, the president just mentioned him. Usually you only, usually a president only, only punches up, for example. Um, you know, Bill Clinton barely even mentioned Bob Dole's name because he didn't want him to be on the same level as him. Richard Nixon didn't mention George McGovern's name barely because he didn't want him on the same level. The fact that Donald Trump is now mentioning his name, people are saying, who is this guy and why is Donald Trump mentioning his name? So it's been, right. you know, it's, it's really, it's really encouraged, I think, the electoral. That's, a, a, that's absolutely true, but there's also another element not to ignore. And this is the, the contrast between de Blasio and Buttigieg, of which there are many, but not the least of which is Buttigieg is going directly, and the New York Times ran this article talking about the blue checkmark Democrats, meaning the Twitter Democrats that seem to think that they control the entire Democratic narrative. Buttigieg has essentially said, no, that ain't true, and gone straight to a, a different source that the blue check marks don't even appear on or watch, except for the sound bites that are pulled out and uh played on the the Daily Show. So Buttigieg, this was a brilliant move on a bunch of different fronts, but not the least of which how well he has done consistently on all of his public appearances. This should not he should not be under under uh, underviewed and and taken lightly as far as how he's going to run his presidential campaign. let's, Let's switch gears here. I want to talk a little bit about the latest polling numbers coming out right now. Polls have Joe Biden in in a thirty percent uh, plus head to head with the rest of the crowd is it should this be scary for uh, for Joe Biden, Alan Moore? I don't know that it's that it's scary. The big the bigger the numbers, the better. Now I suppose one can wonder whether he Jeb, can. These are Jeb numbers. These are Jeb Bush type numbers from 2016. If you look well, at them deeply. Well, I don't. Unless Oprah jumps in, we don't have a reality show. I, I, I know. Um, um, I, I think that that his the expectation was. That he was out of step with the movement going on in the party, that he wouldn't have that kind of lead. And the fact that he does have that kind of lead, that he has not made mis- the, the kind of mistakes that he's historically made, um, uh, suggests that there's more going on inside the Democratic Party than just this big move left. Um and uh, there, there are people saying we want somebody that makes us feel comfortable that can beat Trump. I don't know where it's headed, but it, it, somebody who everybody knows, 
in America, uh, and certainly among Democrats, um, you'd you'd want as big a number as possible. He's he's and and then hang on to it. And once we start thinning out the ranks from the twenty four or the two hundred and forty nine or whatever the number <laughs> is, um, uh, and get down to uh, you know a dirty dozen, and then uh, there's eight or ten, six or eight. Um, if he can, if he can uh, uh, continue to maintain a big lead, um, we we just don't know. But if he were only at getting fifteen or twenty percent, it would be like, wow, that's got to be really disappointing when everybody knows who you are. Right. Well, we've got a couple of minutes left in the show. I, I do want to address one thing because I've gotten a couple of tweets since we've been on the uh, since we've been on our live feed on Twitter. Any of them donating uh, money to my we, presidential race? No, they're not. They're <laughs> actually giving us a hard time. Uh, I've had a couple of texts from people that are listeners saying, how come we're not dealing with the, the abortion question? Uh, I will tell you this. Are we going to talk about this? Yes. What I do not want is four old white guys talking about women's uh, reproduction rights and women's health issues in a vacuum. I'm not so that old. I want to get our... What's that? I'm not that old. <laughs> so, so, it's so not a vac- it's not a vacuum, but it's incomplete. It's incomplete. I'll give you that. Okay, but the, but the reality is we're not going to talk about that uh, with four middle aged. We're not going to talk guys. about it right now. We'll talk about it with more uh, diverse crew. With 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 more diverse crowd, exactly. So for those of you listening, we're not doing away with it. We are going to talk about it. We'll probably spend an entire hour talking about it, but now is not the time. <laughs> That being the case, on behalf of Dan Lipner, uh, Alan Moore there in studio, uh, we've got Richard Bino. Thanks for calling in. Hope you'll join us next week, Rich. We love having Absolutely. you. Absolutely. Will do. And, and we'll get you that information. Also, we've got Eric Thomas uh, and Rob the Engineer in the cage. Thank you, guys. We will be back for the next episode of the best political talk show you've never heard of, Backroom Politics. From Studio A in Upper Georgetown, Washington, D.C. You can follow us on Twitter at Backroom Politics. You can follow us on Instagram at Backroom Politics. You can also go to our website, www.backroompolitics.org, where you can download all of the factual documents. And you can also download us as a podcast from your favorite podcast service, including iTunes, Google Podcasts. And even Spotify. Yeah, we're kind of a big deal. Have a great week, America. We'll see you next week. And I will be back in studio. Bye-bye.